So good morning, and I think I've seen you all and you've all seen me, so I won't reintroduce myself. If anyone doesn't know who I am, please ask after the service, I'll tell you who I am. It's good to be here, and, and I, as you saw, I came down to your level. <laughs> it's good to be on the same platform and have a level playing field, isn't it? Um, so it's a great privilege uh, to be able, and, and a responsibility, uh, to be able to share the Word of God with God's people. And every time I have to do it, I, I tremble. I know in my head that I have preached in front of people many times before from a quite a young age, but every time I have to share the Word of God, I'm doing it as if I'm doing it for the first time. The, the trepidation in my heart, because... Uh, you're handling something very powerful. The Word of God is powerful. And the Bible says that we need to rightly divide the Word of Truth, means that there is a way of wrongly dividing it as well. So God holds us, people who speak from the front with authority, uh, to a higher standard of responsibility when we share the Word of God. So I pray, I thank you for praying uh, for me and, and <clears throat> the prayers that have gone on for, for this message because it is important that we look at the Word of God in the right light, in the right spirit, and so on. So we have come to the end of our uh, three-part uh, series on the kingdom of God. And this is the third and last part, let's see, of the series uh, called the kingdom of God. In the first part, in early November, we looked at the citizens of the kingdom of God. The citizens of the kingdom have a special name. What's the name for the citizen of the kingdom of God? Johnny spoke about this topic early now, and by now it's too, too long ago, but special word. Saint, yes. So the name of the citizen of the kingdom of God is, is saint. The citizen of this country is called a Brit, isn't it? Or a pom, I don't know. <laughs> but the, the, the citizen of the kingdom of God is called a saint. Um, and based on scripture, Johnny uh, presented to us a, a clear definition of who saints are. And last Sunday, I believe he spoke about the location of the kingdom. Every kingdom has a location, isn't it? So, so is the kingdom of God. And I think he spoke from uh, the book of Revelation. Now, I wasn't here. I heard a little bit of it on, on the recording on the website. I was speaking at St. Andrew's Church last Sunday, so I missed that one. <clears throat> but in this day and digital day and, day and age, uh, there is no reason why I should miss anything because I can always go back to it and listen to it, which that's what I did. So today, we are on the third part uh, of the kingdom of God. And uh, I understand that it is a tradition in the church, uh, in the Anglican church and also many other denominations, to celebrate the lordship of Jesus as the creator, as the redeemer uh, of that creation, and as the king over all creation. Therefore, it is appropriate uh, uh, to continue the series and conclude the series, rather, by looking at the king of the kingdom, or the monarch of the kingdom. And, and the passage is Colossians 
chapter 1, 15 to 27. It's packed with information about the king. So I'm going to read it. And can I ask um, who's... Oh, I'll, I'll do the advancing the slides as well. Oh, if, if someone can advance the slides as I read, because I couldn't pack it all into one, one page. Thank you. Uh, please follow with me on page uh, 1182. So, verse 15. The sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds, because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not, remove, do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's quite a lengthy passage, packed with lots of things, lots of truth. So we are talking about the kingdom of God. We are talking about a kingdom. What makes a, a jurisdiction or a, a territory a kingdom? For, uh, for, for instance, what, why is this nation called a kingdom, United Kingdom? Simply because the, the territory within, within its borders is ruled by a king, or in, in this instance, a queen. So on this uh, final part of the series on the kingdom of God, we are going to look at the king of that kingdom. Now, since this is called the kingdom of God, doesn't it, isn't it obvious who the king is? Yes, but in this passage in Colossians, Paul is giving us a detailed account of who exactly um, the king is and why he is the king and not someone else. 
We've been singing a lot of songs about the kingdom of God and the king this morning, if you looked at words. So we are kind of coming up to this place of thinking about the king of the kingdom. So Paul, Paul goes on to detail uh, about what the king has done that affects us, the saints, the citizens of the kingdom. He packs in an enormous amount of uh, theology in these few passages, a lot of theology. There is substance here for a few months of Bible study, if not a few weeks. So in my 15 to 20 minutes of, of uh, this morning's talk, it's not going to unpack it all. But I will, so I will not try to do that, but I will just highlight a couple of things uh, from this passage in terms of who this king, king is. I, I hope this will create a, a sense of awe in your, in your hearts about the king and strengthen your allegiance um, to his realm, to the kingdom. Because this is what it's all about. Sometimes in, in the modern day, we, we have lost a sense of allegiance to the countries that God has put us in. Just before the start of this service, I was talking to a military person, or say, part military person. And I believe the military people, through their training, have given a, a, a higher sense of what it is to be in allegiance to a nation because they are actually prepared to lay down their lives for the, the nation they are fighting for, they are defending. So I think in general terms, as people, we have lost a sense of that allegiance, what allegiance is. Sometimes it's even looked upon in, in negative terms. But we are talking about a kingdom and God seeks allegiance to his kingdom. And we need to rethink what this is all about. Last Sunday, when I was speaking at St. Andrews, the passage is Matthew chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount, the passage where Jesus is saying, you can't have two masters. You, have, you will love the other and, uh, and hate the other, love one and hate the other, or vice versa. You can't serve God and money. So God expects allegiance from us. Um, so we need to learn what this allegiance is about and why God, Jesus, deserves that allegiance from us. At the end of the passage, in verse 28, the passage bit we, we didn't read, it says uh, that uh, he, which is Jesus, is the, the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone so Paul is saying that we uh, may present everyone fully mature in Christ. So the teaching in this passage is done with the aim of making saints fully mature. In other words, this is not the milk of the gospel. This is strong meat. This is serious stuff of the gospel. The teaching actually begins with the Trinitarian nature of God taken as granted. The Son, it says, is the visible representation of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. Now this phrase, firstborn of all creation, has to be explained because some false teachers, such as the Jehovah's Witnesses, distort this to support 
their false teaching that Jesus was a created being. Have you spoken to any Jehovah's Witnesses lately? Have they come to your door? If you have a conversation, they will say that Jesus is a created being. But this scripture could be used uh, to describe two different things. You know, we need to allow scripture to explain scripture. Number one, the literal meaning, which is the firstborn child. Um, in, in, the context, the first, in the Hebrew context, the firstborn child had many privileges as well. But nonetheless, it talks about the firstborn child. And number two, it describes a status of a person. Now, I'll give you an example. In Psalm 89, verse 27, God says of King David, also I will make him, that is King David, my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. But David, we know, wasn't the firstborn son of Jesse. In fact, he was the lastborn son of Jesse. And he wasn't even the first king of Israel. Who was the first king of Israel? King? King Saul. So he wasn't firstborn, he wasn't the first king. So God is saying, I will make him firstborn, the highest kings of the earth. So the firstborn here means the highest level of status, and it has little to do with, with time-related chronological events, uh, that word first. Um, but because this eternal son of God who was in eternity, put on flesh and restricted himself and came to become like one of us, like one of his created things, the Father is able to use the same terms that he uses for the created things for the Son. Hence, he becomes the firstborn of the created things. So it's very important to understand this uh, difference. And it is also further reinforced by the, the verses that follow when Paul says, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. <clears throat> if Jesus is before all things, meaning before all created things, how could he be a created being? It doesn't make sense. Therefore, comparing scripture with scripture, we can conclude that Jesus is the person who has preeminence or supremacy in everything. He is not created, but he is the creator of all things and has supremacy over all things, seen and unseen, because there are things that are created that are unseen as well, on earth and in heaven, in the physical realm and in the spiritual realm. He is the king. So let us look at how Jesus came to the position of supremacy. So the question seems to suggest that the Son of God was once less than supreme, and then he became supreme. This is not so. He had the same status as God from the very beginning. We read that in John 1.1, the famous scripture, in the beginning was the Word, but the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And also in verse 19 of our passage, for God was pleased, I don't know if I have it on a slide, probably not. It says, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, in the Son. So all the fullness of the Godhead was in, uh, in Jesus. If you read the following um, chapter, chapter 2, it says, the fullness of Godhead 
dwells in Jesus in a bodily form. So when the kingdom of God came, a king had to come with it, you see. Because a kingdom and a king are mutually inclusive. You can't have one without the other. A kingdom does not exist without a king, by very definition. So what did the son do to deserve this position of the kingship of the kingdom? Or why was the son anointed, appointed as the king? So this is what we will look at very briefly this morning. And my, I, my prayer is that we will, create, we will have that sense of allegiance, a stronger strength of allegiance to the kingdom by receiving these words, these truths of the gospel, of the good news. So the first thing the son did was to create everything. He created the kingdom. So the one who creates something is the rightful owner of that which he has created, and he has the complete freedom to rule over it. So now you may think, um, isn't, isn't it enough to be king over a kingdom if he created it? So you are correct. But the thing is, the Son of God did not even more to deserve the kingdom. He did even more to deserve the kingship of that kingdom. So when creation became imperfect through sin, the son went on to restore it by becoming like one of his creation and making atonement through his own, own perfect life and sacrificial death. This procedure was in keeping with God's holy, righteous, and just demands. Without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So for God to remain holy, he cannot allow compromise or he cannot cut corners the price has to be paid in full. And only the Holy Son of God was qualified to pay the price. And thanks be to God, he did. So our king not only created the kingdom and therefore deserves to be king, but he also redeemed the kingdom. He bought it back with his own life and blood. He owns us through creation and he owns us through redemption. This is why we exclaim, yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever. Amen. We sang that in our uh, first song, I think. Yours is the kingdom, power and the glory forever. However, the king of God's kingdom is not like an earthly king. Earthly kings have servants to serve them, soldiers to protect them and fight for them. They charge taxes from the subjects to support them. King Jesus is different. He's a servant king who serves us. He protects us and he fights for us. He provides for us and he blesses us. He's the humble king who chose to be born to poor parents in a cowshed who rides a colt of a donkey and became obedient to a cruel death in order for his subjects to gain citizenship of his eternal kingdom and to be called saints. Paul is deliberately presenting a sharp and deep contrast in this passage. While explaining the supremacy of Christ, Paul is also highlighting the humility of Christ when he talks about um, 
when he talks about the cross and the kingdom in the same passage. The cross and the kingdom. The one who created all things, the one who exists outside the, the, the created realm, lays aside his glory in order to enter creation so that he could redeem creation. This really should stun us in awe and create an undivided allegiance to the king and his kingdom. So before I finish, I would like to take a look at verse 24. Paul says, And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions. Now, this is what I call a theological landmine. It sounds like Christ's suffering were not enough. So Paul is making up for it. It sounds blasphemous and arrogant for Paul to say something like this. So we have to clear this landmine before we progress. To do that, let, let Scripture again explain Scripture. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul is talking about a man called Epaphroditus. I had to practice pronouncing that. Epaphroditus. Who nearly died on his journey carrying a gift from uh, the Philippian church to Paul, who was in prison in Rome. So in verse 30, Paul says, Because for the work of Christ, he, Epaphroditus, came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. Paul is talking about something lacking towards, the Philipp uh, towards him from the Philippian church. Now, it is the gift, the sacrificial gift of the Philippian church that this Epaphroditus was carrying uh, to give to Paul, but Paul is saying something is lacking from you. What does that really mean? Lacking in service, he actually means that the Philippian church was not able to be physically present with, with Paul. They were not able to physically go with that gift to Paul. So Epaphroditus was the substitute that represented the Philippian church and carried the gift to Paul in prison. Similarly, Paul is saying in our passage in Colossians that Jesus is not physically present, uh, present to display his, his suffering to the church. Jesus is not physically present because he's ascended to the heavens. And, but Paul rejoices that he is able to demonstrate Christ's suffering through his own suffering for the sake of the gospel. That is what that passage means of what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. It does not mean that Christ's suffering was not enough and Paul had to top it up somehow in his own suffering. Uh, this is again uh, something that some theologians, not people, wrong teachers can take um, in the wrong context. So we have to allow scripture to explain scripture. So anyway, that is a little side note. We come back to our mainstream yeah. So as we close, let us look at what the king has done for his subjects. If he is a servant king, what has he done? The privileges that have been granted to anyone who enters the kingdom. 
This is, uh, we can see this from in this slightly long passage from verses 20 to 22. Number one, he has reconciled us with God by Christ's physical body through death. To reconcile means to restore a relationship, to be a friendly or a pleasant one. We were alienated from God and were enemies in our minds because of our evil behavior, it says. Our relationship with God was a hostile one, but Christ, this King, has reconciled us back to our God. Number two, he has made us holy in his sight. He has made us holy in his sight. And what does holy mean? Holy means is to be dedicated to a certain purpose. Put aside, set apart. And in this case, it is for the purpose of having that relationship with God, having that uh, serving heart towards God serving God, for the purpose of serving God, we have been put aside. Therefore, as citizens of the kingdom of God and as subjects of our king, uh, subjects of our king, the king not only has restored our relationship with the king, but we are invited to be in his service as well. So, but the thing is, we are created in God's image. And one of the main things that we have uh, as uh, created in his image is the ability to choose. We have the ability to choose. Therefore, the privileges of the kingdom are conditional. They are conditional. In verse 23, it says, it lays out three conditions. Um, it says, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move uh, from the hope held out in the gospel. These are the conditions. Continue in faith. God expects us to trust him continually. Our relationship is built on trust, on faith. Like, uh, uh, say, the example is a husband and wife. I have to trust my wife. She has to trust me. She can't put a CCTV camera on me. If she has to do that, our relationship is, is already gone. It is a trust relationship and vice versa. We have to be able to trust our children and the children trusting us. Relationships thrive on trust and God wants us to have that trust in him and he is trustworthy. Number two, established and firm. This is where we talk about maturity. God expects, expects us to be mature, not just drinking milk all the time, but to go on to strong stuff, strong um, teachings, uh, such as a couple of things we had a look at this morning. He wants us to es be established and firm. When we are mature, that's when we, we, are, we can endure the hardships of life. If you're a little child in your faith, when the difficult things come, you fall away or somebody needs to hold you. But as you grow mature, you can weather those things and you can also help others to weather those storms. So established and firm. Remember in verse 28, the purpose of this passage is to make us mature. So thirdly, the third condition is that we have to always bear in mind that it is the gospel it is what Jesus has done, not our own human effort, not our own works of righteousness that made us citizens 
of God's kingdom. So I'm going to invite the band to come and, and lead us into a you know, time of, of reflection um, and maybe invite the Spirit of God at this uh, time so that he can really seal into our spirits what it is to be citizens of the kingdom, saints of God, who knows who their king is and how to increase our, to stir up our allegiance, our patriotism towards the kingdom of God of which we are part of. So as we celebrate the king and the kingdom in this season of this year, let us be thankful that he has reconciled us back to himself and invited us to be at his royal service. Let us continue to trust him. Let us seek to be more mature and permanent in our faith. Let us walk humbly because it is what Jesus has done, not our own human effort that got us into the kingdom and keeps us in the kingdom. So as the musicians begin to play something in the background, let's stand and let's search our hearts. Let's search our hearts and see what do we know about allegiance? How, what kind of understanding do we have about this? I've seen in, in, in some countries that there is a pledge of allegiance and, and when it is said, people come to attention and they put their right hand on their hearts and they, and they read that pledge of allegiance and I think that's a very powerful thing. It's a powerful thing and I believe that God wants us to pledge allegiance to His kingdom. singing about the king and the kingdom and worshipping him let's take it a step further let's be enthusiastic about this king who's created everything who owns us through creation and when that creation got spoiled by sin he also did something else he bought us back he paid the price in full He's made us blameless, holy, set apart for the kingdom. So as we worship, let's lift up our voices. Let's worship Him. Let's praise Him. Use your own words to pledge your allegiance to the kingdom that He's called you to be a citizen.